Section 13 of Library of World's Best Mystery and Detective Stories, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bill Cisna. Library of the World's Best Mystery and Detective Stories, Volume 1, by Julian Hawthorne, Editor. Section 13. Wolfert Weber or Golden Dreams, Part 2, by Washington Irving. Wolfert rose the next morning in complete bewilderment. A dream three times repeated was never known to lie, and if so, his fortune was made. In his agitation, he put on his waistcoat with the hind part before, and this was a corroboration of good luck. He no longer doubted that a huge store of money lay buried somewhere in his cabbage field, coyly waiting to be sought for, and he repined at having so long been scratching about the surface of the soil instead of digging to the center. He took his seat at the breakfast table, full of these speculations, asked his daughter to put a lump of gold into his tea, and on handing his wife a plate of slapjacks, begged her to help herself to a doubloon. His grand care now was how to secure this immense treasure without its being known. Instead of his working regularly in his grounds in the daytime, he now stole from his bed at night, and with spade and pickaxe went to work to rip up and dig about his paternal acres, from one end to the other. In a little time the whole garden, which had presented such a goodly and regular appearance, with its phalanx of cabbages, like a vegetable army in battle array, was reduced to a scene of devastation, while the relentless Wolfert, with nightcap on head and lantern and spade in hand, stalked through the slaughtered ranks the destroying angel of his own vegetable world. Every morning bore testimony to the ravages of the preceding night in cabbages of all ages and conditions, from the tender sprout to the full-grown head, piteously rooted from their quiet beds like worthless weeds, and left to wither in the sunshine. In vain Wolfert's wife remonstrated. In vain his darling daughter wept over the destruction of some favorite marigold. "'Thou shalt have gold of another guest sort,' he would cry, chucking her under the chin. "'Thou shalt have a string of crooked ducats for thy wedding necklace, my child.' His family began really to fear that the poor man's wits were diseased. He muttered in his sleep at night about mines of wealth, about pearls and diamonds and bars of gold. In the daytime he was moody and abstracted, and walked about as if in a trance. Dame Weber held frequent councils with all the old women of the neighborhood. Scarce an hour in the day, but a knot of them might be seen wagging their white caps together round her door, while the poor woman made some piteous recital. The daughter, too, was fain to seek for more frequent consolation from the stolen interviews of her favored swain, Dirk Waldron. The delectable little Dutch songs with which she used to dulcify the house grew less and less frequent, and she would forget her sewing and look wistfully in her father's face as he sat pondering by the fireside. Wolfert caught her eye one day fixed on him thus anxiously, and for a moment was roused from his golden reveries. 
Cheer up, my girl, said he exultingly. Why dost thou droop? Thou shalt hold up thy head one day with the Brinkerhaws, and the Shermerhorns, the Van Horns, and the Van Dams. By St. Nicholas, but the patroon himself shall be glad to get thee for his son. Amy shook her head at his vainglorious boast, and was more than ever in doubt of the soundness of the good man's intellect. In the meantime, Wolfert went on digging and digging, but the field was extensive, and as his dream had indicated no precise spot, he had to dig at random. The winter set in before one-tenth of the scene of promise had been explored. The ground became frozen hard, and the night too cold for the labors of the spade. No sooner, however, did the returning warmth of spring loosen the soil, and the small frogs began to pipe in the meadows, but Wolfert resumed his labors with renovated zeal. Still, however, the hours of industry were reversed. Instead of working cheerily all day planting and setting out his vegetables, he remained thoughtfully idle until the shades of night summoned him to his secret labors. In this way he continued to dig from night to night and week to week and month to month, but not a stiver did he find. On the contrary, the more he digged, the poorer he grew. The rich soil of his garden was digged away, and the sand and gravel from beneath was thrown to the surface, until the whole field presented an aspect of sandy barrenness. In the meantime, the seasons gradually rolled on. The little frogs which had piped in the meadows in early spring croaked as bullfrogs during the summer heats, and then sank into silence. The peach tree budded, blossomed, and bore its fruit. The swallows and martins came, twittered about the roof, built their nests, reared their young, held their congress among the eaves, and then winged their flight in search of another spring. The caterpillar spun its winding sheet, dangled it from the great buttonwood tree before the house, turned into a moth, fluttered with the last sunshine of summer, and disappeared. And finally the leaves of the buttonwood tree turned yellow, then brown, then rustled one by one to the ground, and whirling about in little eddies of wind and dust, whispered that winter was at hand. Wolfert gradually woke from his dream of wealth as the year declined. He had reared no crop for the supply of his household during the sterility of winter. The season was long and severe, and for the first time the family was really straitened in its comforts. By degrees a revulsion of thought took place in Wolfert's mind, common to those whose golden dreams have been disturbed by pinching realities. The idea gradually stole upon him that he should come to want. He already considered himself one of the most unfortunate men in the province, having lost such an incalculable amount of undiscovered treasure, and now, when thousands of pounds had eluded his search, to be perplexed for shillings and pence was cruel in the extreme. Haggard care gathered about his brow. He went about with a money-seeking air, his eyes bent downward into the dust, and carrying his hands in his pockets, as men are apt to do when they have nothing else to put in them. He could not even pass the city almshouse 
without giving it a rueful glance as if destined to be his future abode. The strangeness of his conduct and of his looks occasioned much speculation and remark. For a long time he was suspected of being crazy, and then everybody pitied him. And at length it began to be suspected that he was poor, and then everybody avoided him. The rich old burghers of his acquaintance met him outside of the door when he called, entertained him hospitably on the threshold, pressed him warmly by the hand at parting, shook their heads as he walked away with the kind-hearted expression of, Poor Wolfert, and turned a corner nimbly if by chance they saw him approaching as they walked the streets. Even the barber and the cobbler of the neighborhood, and a tattered tailor in an alley hard by, three of the poorest and merriest rogues in the world, eyed him with that abundant sympathy which usually attends a lack of means, and there is not a doubt but their pockets would have been at his command only that they happened to be empty. Thus everybody deserted the Weber mansion, as if poverty were contagious like the plague. Everybody but honest Dirk Waldron, who still kept up his stolen visits to the daughter, and indeed seemed to wax more affectionate as the fortunes of his mistress were on the wane. Many months had elapsed since Wolfert had frequented his old resort, the Rural Inn. He was taking a long, lonely walk one Saturday afternoon, musing over his wants and disappointments, when his feet took instinctively their wonted direction, and on awaking out of a reverie, he found himself before the door of the inn. For some moments he hesitated whether to enter, but his heart yearned for companionship, and where can a ruined man find better companionship than at a tavern, where there is neither sober example nor sober advice to put him out of countenance? Wolfert found several of the old frequenters of the inn at their usual posts, and seated in their usual places. But one was missing, the great Ram Rapelli, who for many years had filled the leather-bottomed chair of state. His place was supplied by a stranger, who seemed, however, completely at home in the chair and the tavern. He was rather undersized, but deep-chested, square, and muscular. His broad shoulders, double joints, and bow knees gave tokens of prodigious strength. His face was dark and weather-beaten. A deep scar, as if from the slash of a cutlass, had almost divided his nose, and made a gash in his upper lip through which his teeth shone like a bulldog's. A mop of iron-gray hair gave a grisly finish to this hard-favored visage. His dress was of an amphibious character. He wore an old hat edged with tarnished lace, and cocked in martial style on one side of his head, a rusty blue military coat with brass buttons, and a wide pair of short petticoat trousers, or rather breeches, for they were gathered up at the knees. He ordered everybody about him with an authoritative air, talking in a brattling voice that sounded like the crackling of thorns under a pot, deed the landlord and servants with perfect impunity, and was waited upon with greater obsequiousness than had ever been shown to the mighty Ram himself. 
Wolfert's curiosity was awakened to know who and what was this stranger, who had thus usurped absolute sway in this ancient domain. Peachy Prow took him aside into a remote corner of the hall, and there, in an undervoice and with great caution, imparted to him all that he knew on the subject. The inn had been aroused several months before, on a dark, stormy night, by repeated long shouts that seemed like the howlings of a wolf. They came from the water-side, and at length were distinguished to be hailing the house in a seafaring manner. House ahoy! The landlord turned out with his head waiter, tapster, hostler, and errand boy, that is to say, with his old negro cuff. On approaching the place whence the voice proceeded, they found this amphibious-looking personage at the water's edge, quite alone and seated on a great oaken sea-chest. How he came there, whether he had been set on shore from some boat, or had floated to land on his chest, nobody could tell, for he did not seem disposed to answer questions, and there was something in his looks and manners that put a stop to all questioning. Suffice it to say, he took possession of a corner room of the inn, to which his chest was removed with great difficulty. Here he had remained ever since, keeping about the inn and its vicinity. Sometimes, it is true, he disappeared for one, two, or three days at a time, going and returning without giving any notice or account of his movements. He always appeared to have plenty of money, though often of very strange outlandish coinage, and he regularly paid his bill every evening before turning in. He had fitted up his room to his own fancy, having slung a hammock from the ceiling instead of a bed, and decorated the walls with rusty pistols and cutlasses of foreign workmanship. A greater part of his time was passed in this room, seated by the window, which commanded a wide view of the sound, a short, old-fashioned pipe in his mouth, a glass of rum toddy at his elbow, and a pocket telescope in his hand, with which he reconnoitred every boat that moved upon the water. Large, square-rigged vessels seemed to excite but little attention, but the moment he descried anything with a shoulder of mutton-sail, or that of a barge, or yawl, or jolly-boat hove in sight, up went the telescope, and he examined it with the most scrupulous attention. All this might have passed without much notice, for in those times the province was so much the resort of adventurers of all characters and climes, that any oddity in dress or behavior attracted but small attention. In a little while, however, this strange sea-monster, thus strangely cast upon dry land, began to encroach upon the long-established customs and customers of the place, and to interfere in a dictatorial manner in the affairs of the ninepin alley and the bar-room, until in the end he usurped an absolute command over the whole inn. It was all in vain to attempt to withstand his authority. He was not exactly quarrelsome, but boisterous and peremptory, like one accustomed to tyrannize on a quarter-deck, and there was a daredevil air about everything he said and did that inspired wariness in all bystanders. Even the half-pay officer, so long the hero of the club, was soon silenced by him, and the quiet burghers stared with wonder 
at seeing their inflammable man-of-war so readily and quietly extinguished. And then the tales that he would tell were enough to make a peaceable man's hair stand on end. There was not a sea-fight, nor marauding, nor freebooting adventure that had happened within the last twenty years, but he seemed perfectly versed in it. He delighted to talk of the exploits of the buccaneers in the West Indies and on the Spanish Main. How his eyes would glisten as he described the waylaying of treasure ships, the desperate fights yardarm and yardarm, broadside and broadside, the boarding and capturing of huge Spanish galleons. With what chuckling relish would he describe the descent upon some rich Spanish colony, the rifling of a church, the sacking of a convent? You would have thought you heard some gormandizer dilating upon the roasting of a savory goose at Michaelmas, as he described the roasting of some Spanish don to make him discover his treasure, a detail given with a minuteness that made every rich old burgher present turn uncomfortably in his chair. All this would be told with infinite glee, as if he considered it an excellent joke, and then he would give such a tyrannical leer in the face of his next neighbor that the poor man would be fain to laugh out of sheer faint-heartedness. If anyone, however, pretended to contradict him in any of his stories, he was on fire in an instant. His very cocked hat assumed a momentary fierceness and seemed to resent the contradiction. How the devil should you know as well as I, I tell you, it was as I say. And he would, at the same time, let slip a broadside of thundering oaths and tremendous sea-phrases, such as had never been heard before within these peaceful walls. Indeed, the worthy burghers began to surmise that he knew more of these stories than mere hearsay. Day after day their conjectures concerning him grew more and more wild and fearful. The strangeness of his arrival, the strangeness of his manners, the mystery that surrounded him, all made him something incomprehensible in their eyes. He was a kind of monster of the deep to them. He was a merman, he was a behemoth, he was a leviathan. In short, they knew not what he was. The domineering spirit of this boisterous sea urchin at length grew quite intolerable. He was no respecter of persons. He contradicted the richest burghers without hesitation. He took possession of the sacred elbow chair, which time out of mind had been the seat of sovereignty of the illustrious Ram Repelgi. Nay, he even went so far in one of his rough jocular moods as to slap that mighty burger on the back, drink his toddy, and wink in his face, a thing scarcely to be believed. From this time Ram Repelgi appeared no more at the inn. His example was followed by several of the most eminent customers, who were too rich to tolerate being bullied out of their opinions, or being obliged to laugh at another man's jokes. The landlord was almost in despair, but he knew not how to get rid of this sea-monster and his sea-chest, who seemed both to have grown like fixtures or excrescences on his establishment. Such was the account whispered cautiously in Wolfert's ear by the narrator Peachy Prowl, as he held him by the button in a corner of the hall, casting a wary glance now and then toward the door of the bar-room, lest he should be overheard by the terrible hero of his tale. 
Wolfert took his seat in a remote part of the room in silence, impressed with profound awe of this unknown, so versed in freebooting history. It was to him a wonderful instance of the revolutions of mighty empires to find the venerable Ram Repelli thus ousted from the throne, and a rugged tarpaulin dictating from his elbow chair, hectoring the patriarchs and filling this tranquil little realm with brawl and bravado. The stranger was on this evening in a more than usually communicative mood, and was narrating a number of astounding stories of plunderings and burnings on the high seas. He dwelt upon them with peculiar relish, heightening the frightful particulars in proportion to their effect on his peaceful auditors. He gave a swaggering detail of the capture of a Spanish merchantman. She was lying becalmed during a long summer's day, just off from the island which was one of the lurking places of the pirates. They had reconnoitred her with their spyglasses from the shore, and ascertained her character and force. At night a picked crew of daring fellows set off for her in a whale-boat. They approached with muffled oars, as she lay rocking idly with the undulations of the sea, and her sails flapping against the masts. They were close under the stern before the guard on deck was aware of their approach. The alarm was given, the pirates threw hand-grenades on deck, and sprang up the main chains sword in hand. The crew flew to arms, but in great confusion. Some were shot down, others took refuge in the tops, others were driven overboard and drowned, while others fought hand to hand from the main deck to the quarter-deck disputing gallantly every inch of ground. There were three Spanish gentlemen on board with their ladies, who made the most desperate resistance. They defended the companionway, cut down several of their assailants, and fought like very devils, for they were maddened by the shrieks of the ladies from the cabin. One of the dons was old and soon dispatched. The other two kept their ground vigorously, even though the captain of the pirates was among their assailants. Just then there was a shout of victory from the main deck. The ship is ours! cried the pirates. One of the dons immediately dropped his sword and surrendered. The other, who was a hot-headed youngster and just married, gave the captain a slash in the face that laid all open. The captain just made out to articulate the words, No quarter. And what did they do with their prisoners? said Peachy Praw eagerly. Threw them all overboard, was the answer. A dead pause followed the reply. Peachy Praw sank quietly back, like a man who had unwarily stolen upon the lair of a sleeping lion. The honest burghers cast fearful glances at the deep scar slashed across the visage of the stranger, and moved their chairs a little farther off. The seaman, however, smoked on without moving a muscle, as though he either did not perceive, or did not regard, the unfavorable effect he had produced upon his hearers. The half-pay officer was the first to break the silence, for he was continually tempted to make ineffectual head against this tyrant of the seas, and to regain his lost consequence in the eyes of his ancient companions. He now tried to match the gunpowder tales of the stranger by others equally tremendous. Kidd, as usual, was his hero, 
concerning whom he seemed to have picked up many of the floating traditions of the province. The seaman had always evinced a settled pique against the one-eyed warrior. On this occasion he listened with peculiar impatience. He sat with one arm akimbo, the other elbow on the table, the hand holding on to the small pipe he was pettishly puffing, his legs crossed, drumming with one foot on the ground, and casting every now and then the side-glance of a basilisk at the prosing captain. At length the latter spoke of Kidd's having ascended the Hudson with some of his crew to land his plunder in secrecy. "'Kidd up the Hudson!' burst forth the seaman, with a tremendous oath. "'Kidd was never up the Hudson!' "'I tell you he was,' said the other. "'Aye, and they say he buried a quantity of treasure on the little flat that runs out into the river, called the Devil's Dan Kammer.' "'The Devil's Dan's Kammer in your teeth!' cried the seaman. "'I tell you Kidd was never up the Hudson. What a plague do you know of Kidd and his haunts?' "'What do I know?' echoed the half-pay officer. Why, I was in London at the time of his trial. I, and I had the pleasure of seeing him hanged at execution dock. Then, sir, let me tell you that you saw as pretty a fellow hanged as ever trod shoe leather. Ay, putting his face nearer to that of the officer, and there was many a landlubber looked on that might much better have swung in his stead. The half-pay officer was silenced, but the indignation thus pent up in his bosom glowed with intense vehemence in his single eye, which kindled like a coal. Peachy Praw, who could never remain silent, observed that the gentleman certainly was in the right. Kidd never did bury money up the Hudson, nor indeed in any of those parts, though many affirmed such to be a fact." It was Braddish and others of the buccaneers who had buried money, some said in Turtle Bay, others on Long Island, others in the neighborhood of Hellgate. Indeed, added he, I recollect an adventure of Sam, the negro fisherman, many years ago, which something had something to do with the buccaneers. As we are all friends here, and as it will go no further, I'll tell it to you. Upon a dark night many years ago, as Black Sam was returning from fishing in Hellgate, here the story was nipped in the bud by a sudden movement from the unknown, who, laying his iron fist on the table, knuckles downward, with a quiet force that indented the very boards, and looking grimly over his shoulder with the grin of an angry bear, Herky, neighbor, said he, with significant nodding of the head, You'd better let the buccaneers and their money alone. They're not for old men and old women to meddle with. They fought hard for their money. They gave body and soul for it. And wherever it lies buried, depend upon it, he must have a tug with the devil who gets it. This sudden explosion was succeeded by a blank silence throughout the room. Peachy Praw shrunk within himself and even the one-eyed officer turned pale. Wolfert, who from a dark corner of the room had listened with intense eagerness to all this talk about buried treasure, looked with mingled awe and reverence at this bold buccaneer, for such he really suspected him to be. 
There was a chinking of gold and a sparkling of jewels in all his stories about the Spanish main that gave a value to every period, and Wolfert would have given anything for the rummaging of the ponderous sea-chest, which his imagination crammed full of golden chalices, crucifixes, and jolly round bags of doubloons. The dead stillness that had fallen upon the company was at length interrupted by the stranger, who pulled out a prodigious watch of curious and ancient workmanship, and which in Wolfert's eyes had a decidedly Spanish look. On touching a spring it struck ten o'clock, upon which the sailor called for his reckoning, and having paid it out of a handful of outlandish coin, he drank off the remainder of his beverage, and without taking leave of any one, rolled out of the room, muttering to himself as he stamped upstairs to his chamber. It was some time before the company could recover from the silence into which they had been thrown. The very footsteps of the stranger, which were heard now and then as he traversed his chamber, inspired awe. Still, the conversation in which they had been engaged was too interesting not to be resumed. A heavy thunder-gust had gathered up unnoticed while they were lost in talk, and the torrents of rain that fell forbade all thoughts of setting off for home until the storm should subside. They drew nearer together, therefore, and entreated the worthy Peachy Praw to continue the tale which had been so discourteously interrupted. He readily complied, whispering, however, in a tone scarcely above his breath, and drowned occasionally by the rolling of the thunder, and he would pause every now and then and listen, with evident awe, as he heard the heavy footsteps of the stranger pacing overhead. The following is the purport of his story. End of section 13. Recording by Bill Cisna. www.billcisna.com.